Hello. Um, thank you for coming. A long time no see. And this is the first time I have talked since the winter break. So I want to say Happy New Year. But January was already gone. So Happy February. <laughs> so I was supposed to talk about Micah chapter 1 to 4. But because of the snow day, we will be covering all seven chapters. So preparing the whole book in 40 minutes was tough. So I will cherry pick the key point from the book of Micah. Um, the name of prophet Micah is shortened form of Micaiah, meaning who is like Yahweh. He was native of Moratheth, which is a productive agricultural area. He was like Amos, a country guy, who was away from national politics and religion, but chosen by God to deliver message of judgment and hope. There was also another prophet named Micaiah, the son of Imra, who prophesied about um, 150 years before in King Ahab's time in Israel. So he's one of the four disciples of Elijah and stood alone for God against the about 400 false prophets. So these two, you know, um, two prophets are totally separate persons, but have the same name. Audience, his audience were both the people of Israel and Judah, but Judah was the, his primary audience. In Micah prophesied the days of King Joseph and Ahaz and Hezekiah. So Micah's time was after Amos and Hosea, but overlapped with Isaiah. So here we can see in Israel there were Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, and then Assyrian exile in 720 BC. In Judah, <clears throat> Micah and Isaiah minister at about the same time. So Micah is not as well known today as Amos, Hosea, or Isaiah, but there are many similarities between Micah and his contemporaries. First, and Micah and Amos. Micah, in many ways, is uh, similar in personality and message to Amos. Neither of them was from prophetic families. They were both men from the countryside, which means that they were not involved in politics and power struggle of the royal court. They both identified with the poor and powerless and condemned the social sin of the wealthy and the powerful. And they were concerned with personal and social righteousness. So as the prophet Amos was to Israel, Micah was to Judah. Micah and Hosea, they both condemned the religious apostasy of prophet and priest. One theologian said he, the Micah, had Amos' passion for justice and Hosea's heart for love. It's perfect description. And Micah and Isaiah, Micah has been called a military 
Mishnah Isaiah because it's a similarity to that book. So both prophets talk about the same people and problems. The prophecy of peace and justice in Micah 4, 1-3 is virtually identical to Isaiah 2-4. Hmm. So we don't know the origin of these verses, whether Isaiah or Micah, whether they both drew from an old original source. But it doesn't matter because it was word from God and about God, not just the writings of individual people. So both Micah and Isaiah also condemned the evil of the times and also both predicted judgment as a result of nation's sin and both prophesied the Messiah and his reign. So Isaiah described his birth of the virgin, and Micah described the place of his birth in Bethlehem. So, but there are some differences too. The first general emphasis of each book is different. Isaiah was more urban prophet. You know, he was personally acquainted with kings and leaders. So Isaiah's prophecies were directed more to the royal household. And he criticized government policy and its consequences. He also more concerned about larger issues, such as uh, history from his own days and to the, the end time and world affairs. On the other hand, Michael living outside of governmental centers so Micah's ministry was more rural. Micah's uh, prophecies were directed more to the common people. And he, were, he was concerned about the lonely and less fortunate of society. Micah saw the sin and corruption and agony and tears of people due to sinful people in authority in Judah. So his eyes focus more on the spiritual and moral problems on earth. So let's look at the background. The political setting for the book is in 2 Kings 15 to chapter 20 and 2 Chronicles 26 to 30. So Micah prophesies in the days of King Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Jotham was a righteous king. I don't know if you can see it. Sorry. So Joseph was a righteous king, but he did not remove the idolatrous high places from his kingdom. The condition of Judah throughout King Ahaz's rule deteriorated considerably, both religiously and politically. So during his reign, Northern Kingdom Israel was conquered by Assyria. In order to avoid the same fate of Israel, Ahaz willingly made Judah a vessel to Assyria and accepted the Assyrian gods as his own. I think I mentioned uh, when I talked about Hosea that this era was remembered as one of the worst time of apostasy from God. But his son, Hezekiah, is one of Judah's best kings 
and was um, anti-Assyrian and turned down high places and other symbols of idolatry. But his religious reformation has not extended very deep and idolatry was still practiced. So this is the situation Micah was in. So what's the purpose of Micah's writing? First, to warn Israel of upcoming judgment because of his unfaithfulness and disobedience. And to, oops, sorry. And to expose the justice of Judah to confirm the Judah's upcoming judgment too. And then to emphasize God's justice and love in disciplining the nation. And also to affirm God's future restoration, not only judgment, have a future restoration of his people. And lastly, to show God as a sovereign Lord of the earth who controls the destiny of nations. So, and then what's the theme of the book? The one third of the book is about the sins of his people. And another third is about the punishment of God to come. And another third is about the promise of hope for the faithful after the judgment. But the key point underneath all of this is the same as the meaning of his name. Who is like God? It's about God's character. Theologian Paul Kael gave us a perfect description. It, it is like the son of divine grace breaks brightly through the thundercloud of judgment. That is the book of Micah. So, character of book. Micah is a prophet of prediction. The purpor proportionally, this book has more prophecies about the Advent, uh, Advent and kingdom of Messiah and Israel's future than any other prophetic book. First, he predicts the fall of Samaria to Assyria and the end of prophecy and the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, the return of the exiled Jewish people, the birthplace of the Messiah, and his reign and kingdom, and the establishment of God's kingdom over the whole world. Let's look at the structure of the book. So even though this uh, Micah predicted fall of Samaria at the beginning and Babylonian exile near the end, this book is not arranged chronologically. Instead, this book is roughly structured on basis of three prophecies. I love this visual. The three prophecies uh, begins with a call to hear the word of God and the judgment of God and the evidence and then it ends with a promise of hope and restoration of the future. He just moved back and forth, back and forth between the threat of doom and promise of hope. And Martin Luther said about the prophet as a whole, they have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding 
in an orderly manner, <laughs> ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make a head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. <laughs> so when he said it, I think he must have had my time his mind. I'm sure of it. Okay, let's dig in to chapter 1, verse 2 to 5. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax. Before the fire, like water rushing down the slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So the beginning of the first section is the announcement of God coming to judge Israel and Judah. Idols were set up on the hills and mountains, and also both Samaria and Jerusalem was, were built on the mountains, which are centers of great sin. So God comes down and tread on the heights of the earth, means destroying idolatrous shrines and cities that were corrupt. This immoral disease of human is incurable and had spread to Jerusalem. But the interesting thing here is that his prophecy is an appeal to all the nations, the whole earth, and all that is in it. So every human being needs to see and hear what God is doing, not just the Hebrew people in Judah. So that every human on, on the entire earth can reflect and respond to his judgment. So verse 5, Micah used two different words to explain sins of Israel. All this is because Jacob's transgression, Peshah, because of sin, Shattah, of people of Israel. So when we read the Bible, Usually there were three different English words to describe sin. For sin, transgression, iniquity. So what's the difference between them? There are three primary Hebrew words for sin. The first one is shatah. It generally means fall short, miss the mark, miss the bullseye. So when we say sin, generally means shatah. It is a general term for sin, and it covers all sins. Uh, in the Old Testament, sin is basically a moral failure to fulfill a goal. So, what goal? The goal is holy living and spiritual wholeness, which basically starts with loving your God and loving your neighbor. So failure to, uh, failure to love God and people means failure to be humans who has been created in God's image to live as God lives. 
So second Hebrew word for sin is pasha. In English, it is translated as transgression. It literally means to pass beyond and to pass over the boundary line of others' land. It referred to ways that people violate the trust of others. So for Amos, the leaders, uh, Israel's leaders, uh, ignore and justify the mistreatment of the poor was Hisham because they violate the universal trust that exists between all humans who are made in the image of God. Pesha also referred to going beyond the limits of God's law. The idea of it is that a person makes a willful choice to reject God's authority and to stray from the path of godly living. So this is not just missing the mark. This means an outright defiance. The third Hebrew word for sin is avon. In English, it is translated as iniquity. It uh, is defined as deliberate twisting of a standard or cricket dealing. So iniquity referred to behavior that is crooked. So King David's sin with Bathsheba that led to the killing of her husband, Uriah, was not just missing the mark. It was iniquity. So speaking of David, all three of these Hebrew words for sin are used by David to describe his personal sin in Psalm 51, 1-2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and clean me from my sin. So iniquity left unchecked lead to a state of unwillful sin with no fear of God. So when we repeated sin against the word of God become transgression, which if you continue long enough, eventually becomes iniquity. Okay, chapter two, Micah gets um, very specific about the sins that were introduced in, in the first chapter. Micah makes two main points in this section. First, materialism which was Judah's habitual pattern of coveting. And second, rejection of the truth from the prophet. So the rich and powerful scheme against the poor and needy. They rob, fill, hold, and their inheritance of the poor to increase their wealth. So the people has received the land from God as a sacred trust, which was handed on from generation to generation. So the land was a family social security. So loss of the family inheritance usually means poverty for families. So according to Micah, those who use their power to extend their estate at the expense of 
weaker Israelites took more than land from them. They were tampering with the divine order. And by doing so, they also broke the tenth commandment. No coveting. So what does coveting mean? It means strong desire to possess what belongs to others. The worst part of coveting is not wanting other, other people's stuff, but it's being dissatisfied with God was already given me. So when um, my son was in seventh grade, parents of one of his classmates invited all the seventh grade parents over a party. So their house was in Seattle on the Lake Washington waterfront. It was an over $10 million house at the time. I know because I checked it. <laughs> <laughs> the husband was house husband and his wife was a breadwinner. So she was a CEO of a very famous company. So this amazing house was built on her success. The saddest part for me was she was just two years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> so after I came home, I was so depressed. <laughs> what I coveted was not the house, not money, but her success. I kept thinking, what did I do when she had a meeting with Bill Gates? What did I do while she was building her career like that? And she was just two years older than me. So this kind of self-blaming and self-condemning occupied my mind all the time. So I felt so small and I didn't even appreciate what I had. So everything I had was so pathetic and pitiful. <laughs> you, know, you know that feeling, right? You know, <laughs> okay, anyway. So it took a long time to get over that. That's the sin part of coveting. What God gave you means nothing. In 1 Kings 21, King Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. But Naboth refused to sell his vineyard to Ahab. So Ahab's famous wife, Jezebel, arranged a fake charge against Naboth, in which he was accused of cursing God and the king. So Naboth was executed, and Ahab robbed his house and his inheritance. So what once had been the sin of a single king had now become characteristic throughout the entire nation. And the second sin is on willingness to hear the truth, including rejecting God's message through his prophet. There were people in both Israel and Judah who did not want to hear the truth of God's word. They tried to silence the prophets or make them preach to please only or just run them out of town. Just like um, prosperity preachers are popular these days, they like the false prophet who talk about just peace and prosperity without mentioning their sin or judgment or shame. So now in verse 12 and 13, the message of God's judgment 
were shifted abruptly to the hope of God's deliverance and future restoration for the remnant of Israel. God himself would um, assemble the scattered, the remnant of the old Israelite, and then the breaker comes up before them, snaps the chains, and breaks open the prison gates, and let the soul into the true light and freedom. I mentioned Martin Luther's quote earlier that prophetic scripture often rambles off from one thing to the next, so you cannot make a head or tail of it. This is a part of my God where I felt that way. Who is the breaker? Cyrus? That makes sense because we are talking about Judah's future exile to Babylon. Or is it about Christ in the millennial kingdom? Most theologians agree that it is both. This prophecy is a partial fulfillment when Judah returned from Babylon exile under Cyrus, and also most likely will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Because uh, there is another prophecy in Micah in chapter 5 mentioned that a ruler whose birthplace in Bethlehem, and he will extend his influence to the end of the earth and bring security to God's people. So Micah's uh, perspective of hope extends beyond mere, uh, mere restoration from exile to the Messianic Kingdom. Now we move to chapter 3, another transition to divine judgment. So according to Micah, the corrupt leaders, prophet, and priest are responsible for the coming judgment of their country. So let's see what they did. First leaders, they are civic leaders. They were tearing up the skin of the people and ripping them off. Micah is picturing it metaphorically, but these leaders are compared to cannibals. Instead of acting like shepherds, these leaders act like butchers. They were supposed to know and practice justice but they mistreated the poor. So Micah denounced them for uh, failing to practice justice. So in the day of retribution, their prayer will be ignored. Second, priests. Micah criticized the spiritual leaders to, uh, for adjusting their preaching according to their pay. Because of their unfaithfulness, Jerusalem and temple will be destroyed. Third, the prophet, which means false prophets. They proclaim peace if they get paid, but curse if they don't pay. So, in the day of judgment, they will not have prophetic ability, only have darkness and shame. So there's a scene in the palace, in courts, and temple. Like the old three branches of government were corrupt. Hmm. These leaders had the power to make things right, but they used that power unjustly and unequally. All they are doing is all about self-serving and self-glory. So Micah's point 
is that Assyrian is not their enemy. These leaders are the real enemy of the country and they were the cause of judgment. So he speaks out the truth and exposes the sin of the powerful. This is why Micah was often being called the prophet of the poor and prophet of social reform. The pastor Warren Wiersbe said, a true servant of God declares God's message regardless of whether the people like him or not. He would like to be a peacemaker, but sometimes he has to be a troublemaker. The fourth prophet's, prophet's point of view, Micah is a troublemaker, but he is a God-driven peacemaker. So how can you do that in that kind of environment? And verse 3 and 8 said, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. So Micah mentioned four spiritual resources that God has given him to speak the truth. The power of God, the Spirit of God, a zeal for justice, and courage. The other prophets were motivated by greed, but Micah was empowered by God's power and spirit to have a powerful voice of justice. Once an Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, if you are neutral in situation of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse, and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> so we Christians are God's chosen people. So we have this privilege that comes with more responsibility. So we must live life that, God, that show the difference that God makes. That is why we cannot ignore injustice. God wants us to be an advocate for those who are suffering and to condemn the wrongdoers who are bringing pain to the innocent. And God wants us to have his power and spirit, a zeal of justice and courage to be a peacemaking troublemaker rather than a silent neutralist. So after delivering imminent judgment, Michael again turn to ultimate restoration of the future by the true ruler. Let's see chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their sword into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation 
nor will they train for war anymore. Amen. So everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So Micah began with hope for the future, which is in the Messianic age. It comes with four freedoms. Freedom from ignorance. Temple will be rebuilt, and many nations will come and learn God's way, which will be taught by God. Isn't it cool? Hmm. And freedom from war. God himself will reign over many peoples and will exercise his authority among nations. So, in the end, there will be total peace, no more war. Freedom from want. Everyone will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, which is a picture of contentment and security. Freedom from fear. Everyone will live their lives peacefully with God. Isn't this nice? I can't wait. So actually, this verse, verse 3 is inscribed on the United Nations building in New York. I think it is called United Nations Plaza, known as the Isaiah Wall. So we, you may remember that earlier I mentioned that Micah 4, 1 to 3 is almost identical to Isaiah 2 to 4. So I don't know why they only inscribed the name of Isaiah, not Micah. Maybe more people know Isaiah than Micah. Who knows? But if you have a chance to go to New York and stop by and see and rap about it. Oh, I know that verse and Micah said that too, you know. So teach other people. So this will all happen, the second coming of Christ. But the second coming will not happen without the first coming. So Micah provides one of the most significant prophecies of Jesus Christ's birth in all the Old Testament, pointing some 700 years before Christ's birth to his birthplace, Bethlehem. Chapter 5, 2 said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one, with, one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from the old, uh, from old, from ancient times. <coughs> so this is the verse Matthew used in chapter 2 that enabled the scribes and Pharisees to direct the three wise men to Bethlehem where they should find the baby Christ. <coughs> Michael was surrounded by false rulers, but he saw coming of true ruler who exists from eternity will rule and reign properly. The uh, third section in chapter 6, Michael again switched from hopeful future to judgment due to ingratitude to God and religious deception and dishonest and idolatry. Then Michael explained what has become known as one of the great passages of the Bible. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, 
to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God's requirements of us were revealed. To act justly is to act with equity, fairness, and respect to those who are in a weaker social position, which is total opposite of what the leaders were doing at the time, and to love mercy is adding the spirit of generosity, loyalty, and graciousness to acts of justice and assistance. The third uh, essential element of doing good is to walk humbly with your God. The walking is a Hebrew idiom for what we call one's lifestyle. So it simply means to live by faith and seek to give God first place. The climax of the book of Micah is the last three verses of the book, the God's character, in chapter 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will dread our sins underfoot and hurl our own iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledge it on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. The question who is like and who is God like you has embedded in it the very name of Micah. So Micah means who is like Yahweh. Hmm. The answer is there's no one, of course, there's no one that even comes close to measuring up to who God is and what God does. So once a year on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the Orthodox Jew goes to a stream or a river and symbolically empties his sin from his pocket into the water as he recites these three verses, Micah 7, 18 to 20. It symbolizes the fact that God can and will take our sins and wash them down the stream.